Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. And this is Strange Fruit. No, it's not. What is it? <laughs> Armchair Apocrypha. That's right. This is Armchair Apocrypha. This is the podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories, and also we have a dog. Yes. Yes. Uh, it is Black History Month. It is. So I'm going to be doing a story about uh, a black actress um, slash singer Ooh. slash activist. I'm excited to hear about this in lady. In honor of it. Um, how was your week? It was good. Not yeah. too much. I saw Yuval V. Yukon and I got really excited. Yeah. I haven't stopped talking about that for two days, <laughs> as you know. It was just a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun, and then work's been all right, so it's I can't complain yet. <laughs> Tell the listeners about how crowded it was. At the game? Yeah. It had the over 17,000 people, which was the largest crowd for an NCAA women's basketball game this year so far. Oh, that's incredible. Like the season. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, we were up in, my brother and I were up in the nosebleeds. <laughs> in my, since my parents have season tickets, they had like the really nice seats down low. Yeah. Like, whatever. I didn't see you that day because you left at like 4, four o'clock to go get parking. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I left at 4 to pick up my mom at 4.30, and then we parked at a little, like, 4.40, got to the restaurant at 4.50, and the restaurant was already getting pretty packed. Yeah. And then you got home, like, right after I'd gone to bed. Yeah, and then I, like, literally passed out when I got home. I was like, I'm so tired, I have to get up in, like, five hours. <laughs> so. But it was yeah. worth it. Totally worth it. Yeah. It was good. How good. was your week? It was pretty good. Working. Uh, we got uh, a meal delivery service. I'm not going to plug it because we're not sponsored by them or anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's been nice, like, uh, cooking um, new recipes that I've never done before. Yeah. Um, you and did one the good. other night, yeah. right? Um, so that's been nice. Uh, and then just working. Um, we didn't get to go to trivia this week because there was a major snowstorm or ice storm. Yeah. Um, and didn't his computer break or something? Yeah, like his it? his computer broke on so no Tuesday night, and then there was the uh, major wind chill Ugh, slash it was ice fucking slash freezing. snow. It was awful. And then I didn't work on Wednesday, so I got a paid day off. So it was like a nice little vacation day. And Mercury was happy to have me home. Yeah. <laughs> so pathetic. Yeah. Such a needy dog. Such a needy dog. But yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, do you want to get into the episode? I'm, I'm really excited to hear who your person is. Cool. Let me take a, a sip of my wine real quick, because this is going to be a long one. All right, I'm ready for it. Mm. Have you ever heard of Josephine Baker? Mm, I don't know. Tell me about her, and I'll let you know if anything rings the bell. All right. Josephine Baker. I like the name. She was an American-born French entertainer, activist, and French resistance agent. Nice. Yes. Nice. Um, there's a big mystery surrounding her, um, who her father was. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see if I can get down in, in here. Uh, she was born as Frida Josephine McDonald in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Her mother, Carrie, was adopted in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1886 by Richard and Elvira McDonald, both of whom were former slaves of African and Native American descent. Okay. Josephine Baker's estate identifies vaudeville drummer Eddie Carson as her natural father, despite evidence to the contrary. Okay. Um, Baker's foster son, John Claude Baker, wrote a biography published in 1993 titled Josephine the Hungry Heart, John Claude Baker did an exhaustive amount of research into the life of Josephine Baker, including the identity of her uh, biological father. In the book, he says, The records of the city of St. Louis tell an almost unbelievable story. They show that Josephine Baker's mother, Carrie MacDonald, was admitted to the exclusively white female hospital on May 3, 1906, diagnosed as pregnant. She was discharged on June 17th, her baby, Frida J. MacDonald, having been born two weeks earlier. Why six weeks in the hospital, especially for a black woman of that time who would have customarily have, have had her baby at home with the help of a midwife? Yeah. Obviously, there had been complications with the pregnancy, but Carrie's chart reveals no details. The father was identified on the birth certificate simply as EDW. I think Josephine's father was white. So did Josephine, and so did her family. People Was she light-skinned? Uh, you can see a picture of her. Not really. 
Um, where was I? People of St. Louis. Sorry. <laughs> People in St. Louis say that Baker's mother had worked for a German family around the time she became pregnant. He's the one who must have got her into the hospital and paid to uh, keep her there all those weeks. Also, her baby's birth was registered at, uh, by the head of the hospital at the time, when most black births were not. Okay. I have unraveled many mysteries associated with Josephine Baker, but the most painful mystery of her life, the mystery of her father's identity, I could not solve. That secret died with Carrie, who refused to, uh, refused to the end to talk about it. She let people think Eddie Carson was the father, and Carson played along, but Josephine knew better. Yeah. Uh, Carrie McDonald and Eddie Carson had a song and dance act, uh, and they would play wherever they could get work. This was Josephine's first introduction to uh, the entertainment industry of the time. Okay. Uh, when Josephine was about a year old, they began to carry her on stage occasionally during their finale. She was further exposed to show business at an early age because her childhood neighborhood was home to many vaudeville th- theaters that doubled as movie houses. Mm. Josephine lived her early life at 212 Targhee Street, um, known by some St. Louis residents as Johnson Street. Um, it was a racially mixed, low-income neighborhood near Union Station, consisting mainly of rooming houses, brothels, and apartments with no indoor plumbing. Josephine was always poorly dressed and hungry as a child, and developed street smarts playing in the rail- railroad yards of Union Station. She had little formal education and attended Lincoln Elementary School only through the fifth grade. Josephine's mother married a, uh, a kind but perpetually unemployed man, Arthur Martin, <laughs> with whom she had a son, Arthur, and two more daughters, Marguerite and Willie. Sorry. Perpetually <laughs> unemployed. <laughs> Just like the way that was worded. She took in laundry to wash uh, to make ends meet, and at eight years old, Josephine began working as a live-in domestic for white families in St. Louis. One woman abused her, burning Josephine's hands when the young girl put too much soap in the laundry. Um... At age 13, she worked as a waitress at the Old Chauffeur's Club at 3133 Pine Street. She also lived as a street child in the slums of St. Louis, sleeping in cardboard shelters, scavenging for food in garbage cans, making a living with street corner dancing. It was at the Old Chauffeur's Club where Josephine met Willie Wells and married him the same year. However, the the marriage lasted less than a year. Following her divorce with Wells, she found at work with a street performance group called the Jones Family Band. In Baker's teen years, she struggled to have a healthy relationship with her mother, uh, Carrie McDonald, who did not want Josephine to become an entertainer because of um, the shows that she was expected to perform in, uh, which are blackface shows. Hmm. Blackface entertainment shows. Oh, nice. Love those. Uh, Josephine Not. and her mother <laughs> butted heads over this. Um, she got married to Willie Baker, um, whom she married in 1921 at uh, the age of 15. Um, Say that again? She got married at the age of 15 to Willie Baker. I couldn't even drive a car at 15. Why would I be married at 15? <laughs> this is her second husband at the age of 15. Oh my god, that's right. Remember this is that. her second one. She, so she was married at 14, divorced at 14, probably. Ugh. Married at 14, divorced at 14 or 15, 15 and then married again at 15. Mm-mm. Give yourself a break, girl. Um, her mom wanted her to be a caretaker for Willie, and she butted heads with her over that as well. Um, she left Willie Baker when her vaudeville troupe was booked into a New York City venue and divorced him um, in 1925. So, four years later. Okay. It was during this time that she began to see significant career success, and she continued to use his last name professionally for the rest of her life. So she got a good name out of it. Josephine Baker. That's a really fucking great <laughs> name. I think I mentioned that at the top, yeah. so... <laughs> Not even now. Um, though Baker traveled, then returned with gifts and money for her mother and younger half-sister, the turmoil with her mother pushed her to make a trip to France. Um, Baker's consistent badgering of a show manager in her hometown led her to being recruited uh, for the St. Louis uh, Chorus Vaudeville Show um, at age 15. Um, she headed to the New York City um, during the Harlem Renaissance, performing at the Plantation Club, Florence Mills' Old Stomping Ground, and the chorus lines of groundbreaking and hugely successful Broadway reviews shuffle along with Adelaide Hall and the Chocolate Dandies. 
Baker performed as the last dancer on the end of the chorus line, where her act was to perform in a comic manner as if she were unable to remember the dance, until the encore, at which point she would perform it not only perfectly, but with additional complexity. Oh, stop. A term of the time describes this part of the cast as the pony. Baker was billed at the time as the highest paid chorus girl in vaudeville. Her career began uh, with blackface comedy at local clubs, which I mentioned before, um, and her mother was very upset about that. She did not yeah. want her involved in it. Um, however, it was through these performances that Baker landed an opportunity to tour in Paris, which would become the place she called home until her final days. Hmm. Baker sailed to Paris for a new venture and opened in La Revue Negre in two, uh, on 2nd October 1925, uh, at the age of 19, at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées. In 1974, interview with The Guardian, Baker explained that she obtained her first big break in, in Paris. I didn't get my first break on Broadway, she said. I was only in the chorus in Shuffle Along and Chocolate Dandies. I became famous first in France in the 20s. I just couldn't stand America, and I was one of the first colored Americans to move to, to Paris. Oh yes, Bricktop was there as well. Me and her were the only two, and we had a marvelous time. Of course, everyone who uh, was anyone knew Bricky, and they got to know Miss Baker as well. Bricktop refers to Ada Bricktop Smith, uh, who is also a vaudeville jazz singer and a salon keeper in okay. Paris. Let me get back to where I was. In Paris, she became an instant success for her erotic dancing, for appearing practically nude on stage. (laughs) After a successful tour of Europe, she broke her contract and returned to France to star at the Folie Berger, uh, setting the standard for her future acts. Baker performed the Danse Sauvage, uh, wearing a costume consisting of a skirt made of a string of artificial bananas. Her success coincided in 1925 with the Exposition des Arts Décoratifs, uh, which she gave, which gave birth to the term Art Deco. Have you heard of that? Art Deco. Art Deco. Maybe from like a uh, art class at some point. Okay. Um, for those who don't know, Art Deco is uh, how should I explain this? Um, it's style. It's a modernist, like stylized yeah. um, form of art, uh, in which everything is like striking. Everything is like sharp. Uh, gotcha. It's supposed to represent like luxury and exuberance. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a meme going around. It's like uh, dwarves. Dwarves are Art Nouveau, and elves are Art Deco. <laughs> If that's how you, or if that's how you want to remember it, I think that's the one it was. I like that. <laughs> um, Baker represented one aspect of this fashion. It later shows in Paris. She was often accompanied on stage by her pet cheetah, Chiquita, Chiquita. who was a, Chiquita the cheetah, who was adorned with a diamond collar. I know you don't like cats. How would you do, how would you deal with a uh, cheetah in the? Not great. Not great. No. No. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> the cheetah frequently escaped into the orchestra pit, where it terrorized the musicians, adding another element really? of excitement. To no, the show. <laughs> excitement is not the word you would use. <laughs> you wouldn't think it was great if, like, you were watching an orchestra and a cheetah leapt from the stage into the orchestra. You're like, I am too old for this. Shit. <laughs> just leave. Go get some ice cream somewhere. Um. Uh, Baker was the most successful American entertainer working in France at the time. Uh, Ernest Hemingway called her the most sensational woman anyone ever saw. Um, Picasso drew paintings depicting her alluring beauty. And John Cocteau became friendly with her and helped vault her into international stardom. So she is well connected at this point. Sounds like it. She starred in three films which found success only in Europe. The silent film Siren of the Tropics... Zuzu and Princess Tam Tam. Never heard of any of those. No, I no. Uh, she also uh, starred in False Alert in 1940. Um, at this time, she scored her most successful genre, her most successful song, J'ai Deux Amours. I have two loves, my oh. country and Paris. All right, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> 
At the start of her career in France, Baker met a Sicilian former stonemason who passed himself off as a count, who persuaded her to let him manage her. Giuseppe Papito Abatino was not only Baker's manager, but also her lover. I, s- I thought you were going to go there with that. The two could not marry because at the time, Baker was still married to her second husband, Lily Baker. That she married when she was 15. That she married when she was 15. Uh, under the management of Al Pacino, Baker's stage and public Al persona... Al Pacino! I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm listening. I'm <laughs> Baker's stage and public persona, as well as her singing voice, were transformed. In 1934, she took the lead in a revival of Jacques Offenbach's opera Le Creole, uh, which premiered in December of that year for a six-month run at the Théâtre Marigny on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. In preparation for her performances, she went through months of training with a vocal coach, and her her transformation was described by Shirley Bassey as going from a petite danseuse savage with a decent voice to la grande diva magnifique. I swear in all my life I have never seen and probably never shall see again such a spectacular singer and performer. Despite her popularity in France, Baker never attained the equivalent reputation in America. Her star turn in the 1936 revival of Siegfeld Folie in Broadway generated less than impressive uh, box office numbers, and later in the run, she was replaced by Gypsy Rosalie. Time magazine referred to her as a Negro wench whose dancing and singing might be topped anywhere outside of Paris. While other critics said her voice was too thin and dwarf-like to fill the Winter Garden Theater, she returned to Europe heartbroken. That's awful. Um, She would later become a legal citizen of France and give up her American citizenship, and I don't blame her. I would, too. In 1937, she returned to Paris and married the French industrialist uh, Jean Lyon and became a French citizen. They were married in a French town of, uh, I'm not going to pronounce this yeah, right, okay. so I'm really sorry to any French people who are listening, uh, Crevecourt Le Grand, in a right. wedding presided over by the mayor, Jamie Smith. In September of 1939, when France declared war on Germany mm-hmm. in response to the invasion of Poland, Baker was recruited by the Duyum Bureau, French military intelligence, as an honorable correspondent. Baker collected what information she could about German troop locations from officials she met at parties. She she specialized in gatherings at embassies and ministries, charming people as she had always done, while gathering information. Her cafe society fame enabled her to rub shoulders with those in the know, from high-ranking Japanese officials to Italian bureaucrats, and to report back what she heard. Yeah. She attended parties and gathered information at uh, the Italian embassy without raising suspicion. When the Germans invaded France, Baker left Paris and went to the Chateau de Mil- Milons with her uh, her home in the... Dro- that, oh. <laughs> like, that wasn't me. <laughs> uh, her home in the Dordogne department in the south of France. She housed people who were eager to help the Free French effort led by Charles de Gaulle and supplied them with visas. As an entertainer, Baker had an excuse for moving around Europe, visiting neutral nations such as Portugal, as well as some in South America. She carried information for transmission to England about airfields, harbors, and German troop concentrations in the west of France. Notes were written in invisible ink on Baker's sheet music. Later, in 1941, she and her entourage went to the French colonies in North Africa. The stated reason was Baker's health since she was recovering from uh, a case of pneumonia. But the real reason was to continue helping the resistance. Nice. Twist. From a base in Morocco, she made tours of Spain. She penned notes with her the information she gathered inside to her underwear, counting on her celebrity to avoid a strip search. She met the Pasha of Marrakech, whose support helped her through a miscarriage. Uh, After the miscarriage, she developed an infection so severe it required a hysterectomy. The infection spread, and she developed peritonitis and then septicemia. Mm -hmm. After her recovery, um, 
which she continued to fall in and out of. She started touring to entertain British, French, and American soldiers in North Africa. The Free French had no organized entertainment network for their troops, so Baker and her entourage managed for the most part on their own. They allowed no civilians and charged no admission. Good. In Cairo, Egypt's King Farouk asked her to sing. She refused because Egypt had not recognized Free France and remained neutral. However, she offered to sing in Cairo at a celebration of honor for the ties between Free France and Egypt, and asked Farouk to preside, a subtle indication of which side his, official neutral, uh, his officially neutral country leaned toward. Nice. After the war, Baker received subtle the... Subtle yet signifying. Yes. After the war, Baker received two medals of honor, the Croix de Gare and the Rosette de la Résistance. She was made a Chevalier of the Legion d'Honneur by General uh, Charles de Gaulle. Baker's last marriage, um, her fourth, uh, <laughs> was to French composer and conductor Joe Bouillon, ended, uh, and it ended around the time that Baker opted to adopt her 11th child. Excuse me, how many? 11. That's the one followed by another one? That's two ones in a row. Oh my gosh! (laughs) After the separation from Joe Bouillon, uh, Baker's chateau in France was foreclosed and she had to uh, be physically removed from the property. Oh, shit. In 1949, a reinvented Baker returned in triumph to the Folie Berger. Bolstered by recognition of her wartime heroics, Baker, the performer, assumed a new gravitas, unafraid to take on serious music or subject matter. The engagement was a rousing success and reestablished Baker as one of Paris's preeminent entertainers. In 1951, Baker was invited back to the United States for a nightclub engagement in Miami. After winning a public battle over desegregating the club's audience, Baker followed up her sold-out run at the club with a national tour. Rave reviews and enthusiastic audiences accompanied her everywhere, climaxed by a parade in front of 100,000 people in Harlem, in honor of her new title, NAACP's Woman of the Year. Yeah. Her future looked bright. Oh, great. That sounds <laughs> ominous. It looked right. With, However. With six sorry. months of bookings and promises of many more to come, an incident at the store club interrupted and overturned her plans. Of course it did. Baker, ever outspoken, criticized the club's unwritten policy of discouraging black patrons, then scolded columnist Walter Winchell, an old ally, for not, raising, uh, for not rising to her defense. Winchell responded swiftly with a series of harsh, of harsh public rebukes, including accusations of communist sympathies. Mm. The ensuing publicity resulted in the termination of Baker's work visa, forcing her to cancel all her engagements and return to France. It was almost a decade before U.S. officials allowed her back into the country. Oh. In January 1966, Fidel Castro invited Baker to perform at the Teatro Musical de la Habana in Havana, Cuba, at the seventh anniversary celebration of his revolution. Did she go? She went. Oh. Her spectacular show in April broke attendance records. Oh, wow. In 1968, Baker visited Yugoslavia and made appearances in Belgrade and Skopje. In her later career, Baker uh, faced financial troubles. She commented, Nobody wants me. They've forgotten me. Family members encouraged her to continue performing. In 1973, only five years later, she performed at Carnegie Hall in America to a standing ovation. Damn. I just see the movie happening for her. <laughs> and she stands in Carnegie Hall like towards the end, the last five minutes. This isn't even just a movie. This is like a... a miniseries this is like a lot three is three it's a trilogy because this is this has got to be you know she's uh she's becoming the preeminent um Mm -hmm. uh entertainer in france and then she gets the downfall and then she's a resistance fighter and then she has her downfall and then she returns to france and then she has her downfall and then she returns to america and then she has her downfall uh it's It's a it's, a roller coaster yeah it's just so much um, in 1974, she appeared in a Royal Variety performance at the London Palladium, and then at the Mon- uh, Monacan Red Cross Gala, celebrating her 50 years in French show business. 50 years. Damn. 
Advancing years and exhaustion began to take their toll. She, she sometimes had trouble remembering lyrics, and her speeches between songs tended to ramble. She still continued to captivate audiences of all ages. Although based in France, Baker supported the civil rights movement during the 1950s. When she arrived in New York with her husband, Joe, um, that was her fourth husband, sorry. Fourth husband, 11 children, right? 11th child. 11th adopted She child. adopted her yeah. 11th child when she yeah. was in her fourth marriage, yes. Yeah. Um, there were fused reservations at 36 hotels in New York oh. because of racial discrimination. 36? 36 hotels. It takes a whole day to go to 36 yeah, I know. hotels. I don't care if they're all next to each other. She was so upset by this treatment that she wrote articles about the segregation in the United States. In New York City, too. In New York City. Uh, she also began traveling into the South. She gave a talk at Fisk University, a historically uh, black college in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, she refused to perform for segregated audiences in the United States, although she was offered $10,000 by a Miami club. The club eventually met her demands and desegregated. Oh, good. Her insistence on mixed audiences helped to integrate live entertainment shows in Las Vegas. Um, she also began receiving threatening phone calls from people claiming to be from the Ku Klux Klan, but said publicly that she was not afraid of them. Because mm. fuck the Klan. Yeah. In 1951, Baker made... Of <laughs> fuck the Klan. <laughs> Historically and uh, modernly, contemporarily. Fuck the clan. Yeah. Now and forever <laughs> and always. Amen. <laughs> there you go. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. <laughs> in 1951, Baker made charges of racism against Sherman Billingsley's uh, Stork Club in Manhattan, where she had been refu uh, refused service. Actress Grace Kelly, who was at the club at the time, rushed over to Baker, took her by the arm, and stormed out uh, with her entire party, vowing never to return. She would later return on January 3rd, 1956, with Prince Rainier of um, of Monaco. Oh, I know him. He's I married to Grace him. Kelly. Yeah. Or, or was married. <laughs> They're both Gra dead Gra now. Grace Kelly is who I'm talking about. Wait, I missed something there. I'm so sorry. Actress uh, Grace Kelly, who is at the uh, Stork Club in Manhattan, Yes. Um, rushed over to Baker. Yeah. Uh, Baker was refused service. Grace Kelly rushed over to Baker, took her by the arm, and stormed out with her entire party, Vowing never to return. My hero. She would later return on January 3rd, now, 1956, with Prince Rainier of, of Monaco. Monaco, who was her, yeah. The two women became close friends after the incident. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> when Baker was near uh, bankruptcy, Kelly offered her a villa and financial assistance. Kelly by then was Princess Consort of Rainier III of Monaco. You've talked about this. Yep. Um... During his work on the Stork Club book, author and New York Times reporter Ralph Blumenthal was contacted by John Claude Baker, one of Baker's sons, the one who wrote the book. Uh, having read a Blumenthal-written story about Leonard Bernstein's FBI file, he indicated that he had read his mother's FBI file, and using comparison of the file to the tapes, said he thought the Stork Club incident was overblown. Baker uh, worked with the NAACP, and she was their, uh, their person of the year. Um, her reputation as a crusader grew to such extent that the NAACP had Sunday, 20, uh, Sunday, May 20th, 1951, declared Josephine Baker Day. She was presented with life membership with uh, the NAACP by Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Ralph Bunch. 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 The honor she was paid spurred her to further her crusading efforts with the Save Willie McGee rally after he was convicted of the 1948 beating death of a furniture shop owner in Trenton, New Jersey. As a decorated war hero, whom was bolstered by the uh, as a decorated war hero, uh, she was bolstered by the racial equality she experienced in Europe. Baker became increasingly regarded as controversial. Controversial for America. Mm -hmm. um, some black people even began to shun her, fearing that her outspokenness and racy reputation from earlier years would hurt her cause. Uh. In 1963, she spoke at the March on Washington at the side of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who we've talked about before. Who's uh, he again? <laughs> I can't remember his story right now. I'm sure it's uh, I'm sure it's something good. Baker was the only official female speaker. 
Uh, she wore her free French uniform emblazoned with her Medal of the Legion d'Honor. She introduced the Negro women for civil, civil rights. Uh, Rosa Parks and Daisy Bates were among those she acknowledged and uh, both um, gave brief speeches. Not everyone involved wanted Baker present at the march. Some thought her time overseas had made her uh, a woman of France, one who was disconnected from the civil rights issues going on in America. In her powerful speech, one of the things Baker notably said was, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents, and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, mm -hmm. and that made me mad. Yeah. And when I get mad, you know that I open my big mouth. And then look out, because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all the world over. Ugh. Yes. After King's assassination, his widow, Coretta Scott King, approached Baker in the Netherlands to ask if she would take her husband's place as leader of the civil rights movement. After many days of thinking it over, Baker declined, saying her children were too young to lose their mother. In her later years, Baker converted to Roman Catholicism. In 1968, Baker lost her castle. Um, I think it was more of a chateau, but she... <laughs> it's not a castle, it's just a chateau. She lost her home uh, <laughs> owing to unpaid death, debts. Uh, afterwards, Princess Grace offered her an apartment in uh, Roquebrune near Monaco. Baker was back on stage at the Olympia in Paris in 1968, in Belgrade in 1973, at Carnegie Hall in 1973, at the Royal uh, Variety Performance at the London Palladium in 1974, and the, at the Gala de Cirque in Paris in 1974. On April 8, 1975, Baker starred in a retrospective uh, retrospective review at the Bobino in Paris, Josephine A. Bobino. 1975, celebrating her 50 years in show business. The review, financed notably by Prince Rainier, Princess Grace, and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, opened rave reviews. Demand for seating was such that fold-out chairs had to be added to accommodate spectators. The opening night audience included Sophia Loren, Mick Jagger, Shirley Bassey, Diana Ross, and Liza Minnelli. Touché! Four days later, Baker was found lying peacefully in her bed, surrounded by newspapers with glowing reviews of her performance. Mm. She was in a coma after suffering, uh, suffering a cerebral hemorrhage. Mm. She was taken to Pity Salpet... Uh, fucking this. French. Pity Salpetrier. Salpetrier? Pity Salpetrier Hospital, where she died, aged 68, on April 12, 1975. She received a full Roman Catholic funeral that was held at L'Iglesia de Madeleine, uh, the only American-born woman to receive full French military honors at her funeral. Baker's funeral was the occasion of a huge procession. Uh, after a family service at St. Charles Church in Monte Carlo, Baker was interred at Monaco's Cimetière de Monaco. And that is the life and times of Josephine Baker. That was fucking fantastic. Cheers. Cheers. To that. We're going to have some close similarities. <laughs> oh, yeah? <clears throat> Are you familiar with the name Nancy Wake? Nancy Wake. I don't think so. She's also known as the White Mouse. The White Mouse. And yes, this is another episode where I talk about a badass female secret <laughs> agent from World War II. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. So Nancy Wake was born in Wellington, New Zealand in August of 1912. Mm -hmm. She was the youngest of six children. Okay. Um, in 1914, so when she was like, right before she turned two, her family moved to Australia and settled in North Sydney. So she was much younger than her brothers and sisters and strongly independent. She's quoted saying, I was a learner and I had a good imagination. But she was also a rebel, in particular shunning her mother's strict religious beliefs. Um, she ran away from home at the age of 16 and went to work as a nurse. Then an aunt of hers in New Zealand sent her out a nice amount of money. And so with that, she could leave. Okay. Um, so she used the money to travel to London and then to Europe, where she worked as a journalist, swinging with a cosmopolitan set of independent and carefree young people. Right. In France somewhere. In France. Or, yes, yes, in France. Uh, it so her and Josephine could have been... No, I'm just saying, this. like, yeah, she lived yeah. in France forever. Um, 
It was a glo- glorious. It was a glamorous <laughs> life, a parties and travel, and she lived it to the fullest. She says, "I always got on very well with the French, perhaps because I'm very natural." Wow. In the 1930s, um, while she was living there, she witnessed the rise of Hitler, Nazism, and anti-Semitism, something that we are not familiar with. As you do. <laughs> in Vienna, she saw horrific scenes. Um, Jews chained to massive wheels, rolled around the streets, and whipped by Nazi stormtroopers in the city square. The sight fed an early determination to work against the Nazis and eventually led her to the courageous role in the French Resistance. <laughs> In 1939, she married a handsome, wealthy French industrial industrialist, Henry Fiaca. 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 In Marseilles. Marseilles. Um, apparently, she was seduced by his proficiency in tango. <laughs> she says, he was the love of my life. Together, they had a very charmed and sophisticated life of, of traveling, dinner party, champagne, and caviar living in luxurious apartments and um, because he was pretty wealthy and she kind of already made a name for herself. Mm-hmm. Six months after one of Bliss, Germany invaded France. As it did. As one does. As one country does to another. <laughs> um, slowly but surely, Nancy drew herself into the fight. And in 1940, she crossed the line between observation and action and joined, and joined the embryonic resistance movement as a courier or smuggling messages and food to underground groups in southern fucking France. Nice. She bought an ambulance and used it to help refugees fleeing from the German advance. Because she was the beautiful wife of a wealthy businessman, she had the ability to travel that few others could do. I would be surprised. And she used it to her advantage. I would be surprised if her and Josephine, uh, Josephine Baker did not know each other. Did or didn't? I would be surprised if they did not know yeah, each other. Yeah, that I... You know they did, yeah. but oh, that's so cool. Um, she obtained false papers that allowed her to stay and work in the Vichy zone in occupied France, which was supposed to be neutral territory, mm-hmm. and became deeply involved in helping to um, help a thousand or more escaped prisoners of war and down Allied flyers out of France through to Spain. Was that what uh, was the thousand? What she was able to do, or is that what she was setting out to do? Was um, she trying to get a thousand? No, or did she, she did. Wow. Yeah, she was a part of like this resistance group that helped that many people leave. That's really impressive. Yeah. Her missions with the resistance meant her life was in constant danger, as duh. She became a suspect and was watched, so the Gestapo taped her phone and opened her mail. She took many identities and was so good at evading the Gestapo, they nicknamed her the White Mouse. That's how she got the name. Wow. So in 1942, the Weimark or Weimark, ugh, whatever, Weimarkt droops occupied the southern part of France. Weimarkt. Weimarkt. Yeah. Southern part of France after the Allies' Operation Torch had started. This gave the Gestapo, unfortunately, unrestricted access to all papers in the Vichy, Vichy regime right. and made life more dangerous. So even though it was neutral territory, it wasn't neutral anymore, right. really. Or you wouldn't feel safe. By 1943, uh... Nancy was number one on the Gestapo's most wanted list, and there was a five million franc price on her fucking head. Damn. Yeah. It was too risky for Nancy to stay in France, and so the resistance decided that she should probably go back to Britain. You would think, yeah. Yes. Um, her husband said that, her husband said, you have to leave. And this is her quote saying, and I remember going out that door saying, I do some shopping that I'd be back soon, and I left, and I never saw him again, and we'll get to that later. Um, so escaping though even though she could help people cross the border escaping on her end was not necessarily as easy it took her six attempts to get out of France by crossing the Pyrenees into Spain one of these attempts she was actually captured by the French militia in Toulouse and interrogated for four days but she held out refusing to give them any information and with the help of the legendarily Scarlet Pimpernel of World War II Patrick O'Leary Tricked her captors into releasing her. The Scarlet Pimpernel. Yeah. Um, so finally, Nancy got across the Pyrenees and from there to Britain. She was on safer ground, but had no news of her husband, who worked separately from what they were doing. So Nancy, who was at the ripe young age of 31 at this time, became one of 39 women and 430 men in the French section of the British Special Operations Executive, SOE, yeah which worked with local resistance group to sabotage the Germans in occupied territories. Nice. 
She was trained at a British Ministry of Defense camp in Scotland in survival skills, silent killing, code and radio operations, night parachuting, and plastic explosives. Okay. She, <laughs> <laughs> she was trained, and now you must go fight for us. Um, there are men, uh, sorry, I lost my spot for a second. All right, so she and the other woman recruited by the SOE were officially assigned to the first aid nursing neo-mantry, and the true nature of their work remained a closely guarded secret until after the war. So people really just thought they were nurses when really they were special operatives. Yeah. So in late April 1944, Nancy and another SOE operative, Major John Farmer, um, (laughs) were parachuted into the Auvergne region in central France with orders to locate and organized the bands of Maqui, established ammunition and arms um, from the nightly parachute drops and arranged wireless communication with England. Um, their mission was to organize the resistance in preparation for the D-Day invasion. The resistance movement principal objective was to weaken the German army, army duh, for a major attack by Allied troops. Their targets were German installations, convoys, and troops, duh, duh, duh. When dropped over the Auvergne, Nancy's parachute became struck, became stuck in a tree. Oh. Her agent said he hoped all trees could bear such beautiful fruit, and Nancy told him not to give her that French shit. <laughs> Where's that movie? I know. Oh, just keep moving. <laughs> so there were 22,000 German troops in the area, and initially there were just three to 4,000 Maquis. Gaspard's recruitment work, with the help of Nancy, bolstered the numbers to up to 7,000. Nancy led these men in guerrilla warfare, inflicting severe damage on German troops and facilities. She collected and distributed uh, weapons and ensured that her radio operatives maintained contact with SOE in Britain. Nice. On one occasion, Nancy cycled 500 kilometers through several German checkpoints to replace coats her wireless operator had been forced to destroy in a German raid. Without these, there would have been no fresh order or drop of weapons and supplies. Wow. Of all the amazing things she did in the war, Nancy believes this marathon ride was the most useful. Get this shit. She covered this distance, which is... How much is 500 kilometers? Two miles, because we're bad. (laughs) Three hundred and ten miles. Yes. So. Uh, three hundred and ten and change. Yeah, and change. So she covered this distance of three hundred ten miles on bike in seventy one hours. Wow. Cycling through countryside and mountain almost nonstop. Her focus was rock steady to the end of her epic journey when she finally wept in pain and relief. I got back and they said, "How are you?" I cried. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't do anything. I just cried. Ah. Yeah. It was an extremely tough assignment. Duh. <laughs> and near sleepless life on the move, often hiding in forests, traveling from group to group to train the Maquis, motivate, plan, and coordinate. She organized parachute drops that occurred four times a week to replenish arms and ammunition. There were numerous violent engagements with the Germans. The countryside was racked with hostage-taking, executions, burnings, and reprisals. No sector gave the Reich more cause for fury than Nancy's, the Auvergne, <laughs> the fortress of France. A method, methodology, I can never say that word. Methodically. Methodically, the SS laid its plan and prepared to obliterate the group, whose stronghold was the plateau above Shaw d'Agui. Troops were massed in towns all around the plateau, plateau with artillery, mortars, aircraft, and mobile guns. In June of 1944, 22,000 SS troops made their move on the 7,000 Maquis through bitter battle and then escaped. Nancy and her army had cause to be satisfied. 14 German, four, uh, 1,400 German troops lay dead to a oh, hundred of their own men. Wow. Yes. Nancy continued her war. She personally led a raid on the Gestapo headquarters in Montecoon and killed a sentry with her bare fucking hands to keep him from alerting the guard during raid on a German gun factory. She learned that in her training camp in Scotland. <laughs> she had to shoot her way out of roadblocks, and she also executed a German female spy. On June 6, 1944, D-Day, Allied troops began to force the German army out of France. 
Yes, we know that. So and then on August 15th, 1944, Paris was finally liberated and Nancy led her troops into Vichy to celebrate. However, her joy at the liberation of Paris was mixed with a tragedy um, that she kind of already guessed. In Vichy, she learned that her husband, Henry, was dead. A year after Nancy had left France in 1943, the Germans had captured Henry, tortured, and executed him because he refused to give them any information about the whereabouts of his wife. She should have left. Ugh. I know. Um, Within a year, Germany was defeated, obviously. Oh, this is just a little recap. I really like this article did. So this is just a nice little recap just to remember that... Um, Nazis will be destroyed. (laughs) Summary. Yeah. Within a year, Germany was defeated. 375 of the 469 SOE operatives in the French section survived the war. 12 of the 39 women operatives were killed by the Germans, and three who returned have survived imprisonment and torture at Raven... and... uh, has survived imprisonment and torture at Ravensbrück concentration camp. Okay. In all, 600,000 French people were killed during World War II, 240,000 of them in prisons and concentration camps. So almost half of them in that. Just so you know. Um, Nancy continued to work with the SOE after the war, working at the British Air Ministry in the Intelligence Department. In 1960, she did get remarried to a former prisoner of war, Englishman John Forward, and returned to Australia to live. Um, after the war, her achievements were heralded by medals and awards. She got a lot from the British. Um, and she did get one from America. Um, Nancy's comrade, Henry Tardvat, perhaps best characterized the gorilla chieftain as saying, she is the most feminine woman I know until the fighting starts, then she is like five men. Um, on December 6, 2001, Nancy left her home in Australia for good to spend her final years in Europe where she had spent so many years. After making the final move back to England, Nancy became a resident at the Stafford Hotel, which had been a British and American forces club during the war. Mm -hmm. The hotel's owners welcomed her warmly, absorbing most of the cost of her stay, helped occasionally by anonymous donations. Despite despite enjoying her not resistance, residence. Residence. At the hotel. She was not there <laughs> resistantly. Uh, Nancy moved um, Fuck the caretakers. to the Star and Garter <laughs> Port to a retirement home in 2003. Uh-huh. She passed away um, on August 7th, 2001 at her retirement home where she had lived for eight years. Right up to her death, she remained assertive about what would happen to her body. She said, I want to be cremated and I want my ashes to be scattered over the mountains where I fought with the resistance. That will be good enough for me. Um... She, they say, I I like this little last bit on her. Um, She was an unusual woman for her time, this article went on to say. She had a reputation among among the soldiers she worked with for being a heavy drinker. Major John Farmer said about her drinking that, quote, we just couldn't work out where it all went. (laughs) When the Australian government offered her a medal, she said they could stick their medals where their monkey sticks his nuts. She sold her medals to support her income in old age. She said, there was no point in keeping them. I'll probably go to hell, and they'd melt anyway. And that is Nancy fucking Wake. <laughs> I talked through it really fast, and I don't know why, but... It was it good. Was, yeah. Well, I think we have to toast to France now. Shall we? Salute. Salute to France. And they're uh. fucking resistance fighter <laughs> badass females. Viva la France. Viva la France. Ah, oh, so those those were good. I really enjoyed that. I don't know why I talked through that so fast, but I really did. <laughs> I she just got when I was rereading, I'm like, oh yes, yeah. she's such a badass. How have I not come across her until now? Right. You got really excited. I know. I do that. <laughs> <laughs> Mercury, what did you think? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Mercury says he liked it, too. I think he did. All right. Let's get out of here. You've got to work tomorrow, don't you? No, I have tomorrow you fucking have tomorrow off. off. I'm relaxing. I'm going to nice. finish that little... Not scotch. I don't drink scotch. Bourbon over there. You're going to finish the bourbon We can off. watch uh, Ant-Man. We can watch Ant-Man and the Wasp on Netflix. Yeah. We are not sponsored by them. Oh, no. It's <laughs> all right. Marvel, get at us. Get out. I'm yeah. Joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Please don't get at us. Um, yeah, let's get out of here. Yeah, enjoy it. But yeah, so I, those were both really terrific stories. Yes. All right. Um, 
as always. <laughs> um, can never remember my outro. Uh, as always, buy my book. Buy my books. Two books. 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 Yes, books. I meant to say plural. <laughs> if I didn't, I meant to. Buy my books. Um, In the shadows of my mind from uh, Savant Publications. Um, Red hats and black masks mm-hmm. from um, Long Steel Rail Press. Um, if you're interested in leftist literature, uh, um, check out Guillotine Press out of um, Tennessee. Um, they just started. They've got a Patreon, uh, all that stuff. Um, you can find both of my books on the website at absentactivismarts.wordpress.com. Um, we also have a Patreon. Uh, if you're interested in supporting us, uh, supporting Mercury, supporting the show, um, you can find us at Absinthe Activism Arts on Patreon. Um, we've got music on the website. We've got um, Joshua Pulp Brooks and Chet Osman. Um, we've also got our intro and outro, which is a computer-generated song that one of my friends sent to me. Um, we've got artwork from Katie White. Um, uh, you can find us on Facebook at Absinthe Activism Arts. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Absinthe Act Art, but we never use it. So uh, April Fools is the day we're doing it. April first, we will we'll post something yes, we'll on April first. Remember that for we, sure. We will I got post two months something. to remember that. I have no idea what it will be, but we will post something on April first. Um, so follow us on Twitter to find out what it is. Um, I think that's everything. I love it. Um, you can you wrap find it up me, in a pretty bow every time. You can find me on um, uh, Diaspora if you want to. It's a Facebook alternative. I'm AWM Rights. You can find me on um, Mastodon, which is a Twitter alternative, at AWM Rights. Um, you can also find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at AWM Rights. And there's such cute pictures of Mercury <laughs> on them, or there, on Instagram. As there as are them. a lot of cute pictures of Mercury on both Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, I think that's it. Uh, we love you and we will see you in two weeks. Till then. Till then.